Hi, FogPod listeners. Welcome to our Women's History Month FogPod special. This is Nora Ward, Managing Editor, and I'm with General Assignment Reporter Jordan Del Fugo. Hi, everyone. Today we have the chance to sit down with USF professor and cosmologist Aparna Venkatesan to discuss her career among the stars and to highlight women in STEM for this very special month. Aparna Venkatesan is a cosmologist and professor of physics and astronomy at the University of San Francisco. She's been here for 17 years and has been recognized internationally for her research and DEI leadership. She works on studies of the earliest galaxies in the universe and is involved in numerous projects in cultural astronomy. Dr. Venkatesan works actively on addressing the wide-ranging impacts of satellite megaconstellations through more inclusive space policy and pre- preserving space as a scientific, environmental, and cultural resource for humanity. She is a former NSF Astronomy and Astrophysics postdoctoral fellow and is deeply committed to increasing retention and pathways to excellence for underrepresented groups in astronomy and STEM. It has been the honor of a lifetime for Dr. Venkatesan to collaborate and co-create scientific partnerships with indigenous communities worldwide for over two decades. Okay, so we have so many questions for you about your fascinating career and accomplishments, so let's get right to it. Um, Our first question is, what interested you in cosmology? Tell us about your earliest moment of fascination with the stars. Thank you both, and I'm so delighted and honored to have the chance to collaborate with you today. I want to begin with just a 10-second land acknowledgement just to honor ancestors past and present of the Raimatush Ohlone community and also the broader circle of ancestors of our USF community who guide us every day in our shared work. When I was a child, math was my favorite subject. And I also found that math was a wonderful language. Regular human languages can often be so loaded right, so subject to interpretation and context, a lot of room for misunderstanding and misinterpretation. I just really loved math and I loved the stars and I loved how math is the universal language. It's the language of the cosmos. So I think combining that love of math with love of the stars led to a career in astrophysics. And cosmology was of a special interest to me because The origin and evolution of the universe really became revitalized through a lot of data in the time that I was a student. Um, I was a young girl in the 80s and then in college and then graduate school in the 90s, and it's really called a golden age of cosmology because so much data started coming in. So that, too, was a wonderful motivation. Thank you. Um, What you said about math being a universal language was really beautiful. So yeah, I really appreciate your response. What sort of data was introduced in the 80s? What was the big data revolution? Yeah, so I would say for some fields of astronomy, like planetary astronomy, the 70s onwards became a lot of missions were launched. We were beginning to get great data back. The early universe had to wait a little bit longer, like I would say the 90s, but for example, data on the leftover radiation from the Big Bang, which is the cosmic microwave background. The decade for that was the 90s and the 2000s. Um, And in fact, I switched my thesis topic, really what would be considered at the last minute, to make predictions for the microwave background, because I realized this was becoming a a 
like a big field. Um, and I think that was one data set. Another data set was just elemental abundances throughout the universe, which turns out are can be a very strong handle on what happened in the first minutes of the universe's 14 billion year history. And also galaxies. We began to find millions and millions of galaxies through automated surveys. The Sloan Digital Sky Survey is one example. So the I am a theorist at heart. I love math. But to have data to test with is very important. And the data began to challenge and fascinate theorists in new ways. Wow. <laughs> Absolutely blown away by that. Um, if you, just taking all of the beautiful ways you just explained that, how would you break down this present moment in astronomy, the biggest things that are happening right now and what people should care about who may not know anything about cosmology? I think that's a great question. Um, astronomy is an easy sell. I There's space, stars, galaxies. Almost everyone connects to it. I think in this modern world, I like to share with my students the sense of awe, like A-W-E and mystery of the universe. I think we forget that nature herself is very mysterious at atomic levels. Not everything can be deterministic. And there is something profound about the modeling and the mystery coexisting together. A lot of areas of physics are very well understood and modeled, but because of fundamental physical laws, there still remains some mystery. I also, in any story, we are drawn to the ones that invite us into the narrative, right? If we see a story as frozen in time uh, or in a way that doesn't include us, our voices, then we feel left out and we're not as drawn to it. So I really feel the unfolding of the universe in it is the biggest story ever. And we are part of that unfolding. Um, I think James Webb Telescope is going to find a lot of interesting things with exoplanets, which has been a growing field. And it's also going to find the earliest galaxies. It's already begun, and that was its main goal. So. I think as all this data comes in, I would say one of the key ways maybe we in this modern life most need astronomy and connect to it are to slow down to remember how ancient we really are. We are all 14 billion years old. Our atoms have been on a wild and fabulous adventure for 14 billion years. And Every moment of every day, we are bathed in ancient light from nearby stars and farther away galaxies. So to slow down and to appreciate that, but to also know that as we put more and more out into the cosmos, we are going back to the moon. We are going to Mars. And James Webb is out there at Lagrange Point, too. And we can see it from here. Our view of the universe is changing, and our view of who we are in that changing view is evolving. So it's a very interesting moment for humanity. That's really fascinating. So um, what is it like being in a field where new information is just constantly being discovered? And as an educator, how do you manage all of the new information that's always coming in and make sure, make sure that it's like relayed to your students in a timely fashion? <laughs> I, I mean, I, 
It is a challenge, um, but I think it does give me peace to work on the universe. I find the human realm rather uh, discombobulating and often destabilizing. Uh, it's nothing to do with human beings who are lovely often. It's more to do with, I just don't think we're quite neurologically wired to take in so much information. And because of the way um, newspapers and clickbait works, it's almost all bad news or kind of these startling headlines. So the sense of alarm and hypervigilance is unusually high. And I, I regret that this is the world being handed to young people, all this alarm and hypervigilance, because there's so much to celebrate and to slow down with. So for me, working with the graceful ballet of galaxies or looking at elements that I know, you know, were made a long time ago, it calms me down and slows me down. Yeah. And did I answer your question? I'm not yes, sure. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know. I like to work with the laws of nature rather than, you know, the laws, the day-to-day -day human laws, which impor are important, right? I don't speed and all of that, but it's like they're important. But they're n the timeless laws are very inspiring. How do you see your work with cosmology being expressed or needing to be expressed in the environmental movement right now and the fight against climate change? Do you see it as all being related? Yeah, I would say um, the cosmology work is is wonderful. Uh, it's a gift. I would say some of my other research areas in cultural astronomy, particularly with indigenous communities, and also my work with orbital space, particularly satellite mega constellations and the enormous environmental degradation that's already beginning to happen both at launch sites, in orbit, and also while they're being decommissioned and re-entering the atmosphere and the ocean, those are the areas where the connection to environmental concerns, uh, environmental justice, and really ecological factors are coming in. Um, I've had a number of papers come out this month in a wonderful collection volume in uh, nature astronomy on dark skies, and my collaborators have published amazing papers in there independently. Uh, they're wonderful. And as the night skies brighten from ground-based light pollution, and as the night skies brighten from space-based light pollution, light justice and environmental justice, which has gained a lot of momentum on Earth, is now expanding to space. And this is something that belongs to us all. I can't think of something more fundamental than the skies and dark skies. But it's also something that invites our integrative selves. We connect to it not just as astronomers, but as human beings through art, through storytelling, through heritage. And you brought up climate change. The heritage aspect for me is especially important at present because climate change is erasing a lot of heritage on the earth, right? Floods, fires, they're erasing heritage sites. And when you don't have the environment that gave context to a people, to their language, to their values, what are we left with but the skies? 
Um, so I really think of it as space and the skies as our common ancestor. I mean, it literally is. We all were forged in the hearts of stars and with supernovae. But I also think of it as a last stand against a lot of the erasure that's happening <clears throat> right now. And one last thing, I think the pandemic has been so traumatic and so sobering with the huge loss of life. A lot of elders have been lost. So I think this is especially a time where hungry for elders as climate change erases the elder redwoods and other elder spaces. And the pandemic erased a lot of lives, including elder lives. So I think we really need that connection with our ancient selves and the ancientness of space more than ever. But there's a lot to parse there, I know, and there's a lot to say on the environmental aspects if we want to come back to that. Yeah, definitely. I, I personally am studying environmental science and climate change policy, and I have not even dabbled in international space policy or anything regarding that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on any sort of things about that, like interplanetary law, if that's the correct term, and what you hope to be accomplished in the next 100 years or so to protect these common, this common ancestor. Thank you, Nora. Uh, I would say that the leading challenge is the lack of policy. There's literally little to no international regulatory policy, not just for orbital space or space, um, but even the nuts and bolts of how do we launch and when, because we already have quite a rotating cage of debris and leftover parts going around the Earth. So getting in and out is already a bit of a traffic jam. But at even a few percent of the planned satellites for launch, up to half a million satellites have been approved for launch in the next decade, or I would even say seven years. Not all of these will launch, but we've launched a few thousand and already things are getting crowded. And the reason for the numbers is this, you know, a global network in lower Earth orbitals that can give us that, you know, global affordable broadband. Because historically, we've only had a few hundred, maybe one to 2,000 satellites up there, but they were at higher orbits and the latency wasn't what we'd need. Um, but coming back to your question, slowly we are extending the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which has some great ideas about working together in peaceful cooperation. And hey, if we're out there, even if we're not getting along on Earth, let's extend the assistance we need to each other when we're far from home. And if there's a mess, who's going to foot the bill? Each country who launched is legally responsible in principle. But it remains just a document of lofty ideals. Not much has there's no enforcement power. The Artemis Accords, which are, have a growing number of signatories for the moon, is building from that. So there's some development of policy, but I would say there's a huge, wide open, alarmingly unregulated, yet a huge opportunity to reimagine this legal policy landscape. Um, and I'll mention a couple of threads if we come back to it, great, if not you know, we'll do it another time. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is mining. 
it's really unregulated and unclear. There is an act that is supposed to be relevant, um, but again, it's a big gray area. The other one is treaties on Earth. How do they extend to space, specifically between crown nations like Canada or New Zealand and their indigenous communities? Huge legal policy landscape like that is completely you know, uncommented on. Like, no one really knows how this is all going to be handled, but it will come up. Yeah, wow. Um, I that's. I wanted to kind of, like, circle back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier, and it kind of relates to the concept of, like, working together um, and, like, who's responsible. Um, I was curious about what your STEM partnerships with Indigenous communities look like and why it was important for you to center this in your work. Thank you. I... I began working uh, with tribal youth when I was a postdoc at CU Boulder in the early 2000s. I had a, that was that NSF fellowship, but you could use part of the year to teach if you wish, which is unusual for a postdoctoral fellowship because you're supposed to be publishing like crazy so you can land that faculty job. But I noticed at CU Boulder there was this Upward Bound program centered on tribal youth. They brought them every summer to CU Boulder in groups so that they didn't feel isolated to give them a college experience so that they faced a lot of the ups and downs of college with community members and so that when they went to college it would be very familiar. So I taught for them for a few years. That was tribal youth. And then over the years, collaborations with Native Hawaiians, uh, global indigenous communities in Central America, New Zealand, through some of my collaborators, including Dr. Isabel Hawkins at the Exploratorium and others, they really grew to include uh, telescopes on tribal lands, um, bringing indigenous scientists to mainstream academe and scientific conferences, and then when my work more broadly grew into space policy, this became a natural extension of that um, because indigenous voices are incredibly underrepresented in STEM and space policy. But I think it's fair to say, given the privatization of space and how quickly things are happening, in my perspective, we are witnessing the real-time colonization of orbital space and many indigenous collaborators have said explicitly that when they're in ceremony with the stars and the satellites just get in between, it's like a literal interruption of ceremony and a painful repeat of colonial history. Um, so I do think it's been a natural extension, but I've been very grateful for all the tribes and communities from whom I've learned so much. So the learning has been really, for me, a great a great gift they've taught me so much yeah how do you feel like the astronomy community in general is receptive to indigenous knowledge different cultures um, certain traditions and beliefs about planetary movements and everything are they receptive is it accepted in academia that sort of thing yeah um so the the wonderful thing about indigenous knowledge because it's these are millennia-old integrative traditions that seamlessly integrate science, ecology, art, sky traditions, and culture. And 
their food sovereignty and lives and migrations have depended on it. So it's by nature experientially tested, interdisciplinary, all the th and sustainable. All the key words that modern science looks for, right? Um, so at the grassroots level, young people and really everyone is very welcoming of it. I've been so honored to bring many indigenous voices to mainstream astronomy conferences or other venues, and that has also been very welcoming. What is strangely ossified is the power structures. The systems remain the same. There's always motivated individuals in them, but there's a strange siloing, like, oh, that's not my purview. Go talk to this office. Go to that. So there's this ping-ponging that happens in the system. So this, there's systemic momentum to deliver the same outcomes of the past. That is very hard. So there's a lot of welcoming by individuals and communities in academe and in universities. But the systems remain the same. You know, the internal systems at federal agencies, they're always motivated individuals and more programs. But strangely, things stay static with time because systems are slow to change. Did you find yourself as a woman and person of color having to overcome those obstacles in your career in education? I know you were the first woman mm. from Cornell to graduate with an astronomy degree. Wow! <laughs> um, but if you want to speak more about that. Thank you so much. I, I think my own journey is unique to me. I think as an immigrant, I've been incredibly grateful for the opportunities I've had, opportunities that... Uh, many communities that have been here for generations have not had. So I just really want to acknowledge my gratitude. I do think that being a woman in physics uh, brings its toll. You're often the only girl in your classes. And it was a historical accident. I didn't plan on being first in a number of spheres. It's just the way it turned out. I think I'm also the first woman. My department's hired in USF's right. many uh, decade history. But again, that's a historical accident. Um, but I do think it's physics is a and a very quantitative field and can have a lot of power dynamics and structural factors that affect people of color and women. And similarly for other, you know, at-risk demographics or underrepresented demographics. So yes, along the way, and it's really too much to share today, I've had more than my share of harassment and racism and also some pretty troubling incidents of like severe bullying. But I just think what helped me survive was allies in the field. And as I got older, I learned to find them sooner at every career stage. Uh, so that really helps. And I think the field has made enormous progress. They have a lot of research misconduct or ethical violations protocols now at universities and um, systemically, nationally. But we still have a long way to go. And it comes back to something I was saying earlier. We feel most inclined to stay in systems or in environments where we feel welcomed as our whole selves. And when we're 
told to just, you know, you're lucky you're here and just fit in. And then, of course, there's a background of wrongdoing by a few individuals, which it took a long time for the system to catch up with. Uh, that's very problematic. So I do mourn that over the years we've countless lost a lot of women or diverse voices. And because this is a Women's History Month uh, podcast, I'll just add one more thought. I think it's a very personal choice um, with, uh, you know, what identity or gender or path one, you know, chooses or identifies with. It's a very personal choice, and it will likely evolve with time. We don't always stay the same person. Uh, but having said that, my own journey as a woman and as a mother is the entire system is really set up for men who achieve early in their careers. Mm. I find women have so many <clears throat> sociocultural factors buffeting them around in their teens, 20s, and 30s that they're really ready to take off by their 40s, 50s, and 60s. They have a longer on-ramp, but everything is kind of... But by then, they've built a lot of momentum, so they really take off by then. They're either busy, like for me, a personal challenge was trying to figure out when to have kids because that was a choice I made, but it was early academic careers are full of constant moves and change. It's just very hard to keep um, a social circle or relationships, let alone families going. And a lot of couples struggle with that. Um, you know, it doesn't just have to be women, but I think that is a challenge that I, as a woman have faced. I also know as an immigrant, the ever-changing visa background legally is also very stressful. So, but again, I am grateful to still be here. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you so much for sharing your experience with that. I can imagine what you were saying about harassment and everything mm -hmm. couldn't be easy, but I really admire your perseverance and how much you've been able to accomplish despite obstacles. Um, so I was wondering, why do you feel it's important for women to be in STEM spaces and specifically within the field of astronomy and cosmology? Thank you. Um, I think that it's very important to have as much identity diversity in all fields, but particularly in STEM, uh, because in most places, a rather static and, you know, Western male-centered story of science is told. So we need to rewrite a lot of those stories to remember everyone who's been left out. And I'll, again, given the month, I will focus on women, but I, there are so many demographics and identities we need to invite back to the space. And, and I think particularly for women, I think the different decades of our life bring a lot of rich intellectual insights. And because we're culturally assigned to a lot of the human organization, hey, can you organize a party for the department? Or can you check on those students and do all the, like the advising? You know, it's just true that if you're a woman of color in the department, a lot of women and people of color in the department will come find you if they're facing challenges or need a listening ear. And that's great. Um, but I think 
having people in the system that mirror the future workforce we want to have is key. But I also think because women are, you know, willingly or not, whether they want to or not, are put in charge of a lot by society. I just think, and this is not about me, but when I look at women in the field, they just have mad social and organizational skills. They've had to to survive. And they're extraordinarily good at running meetings, getting through a lot of static to the main issues. So there's a combination of just breadth and depth um, that I think really comes from the beautiful, lifelong, creative wellspring of being a woman in the modern world. It's not limited to just women, but I did want to amplify that. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful and inspiring. Thank you so much for breaking it down like that and putting words to these feelings that I think many people feel um, across the gender spectrum and especially mm. women. Um, just for our last question, do you have any advice or inspiration for women in STEM in general, women looking to get into astronomy about what you've learned, how you've cleared the static and really be fulfilled in this career and in the STEM field in general? Thank you. Um, so for me, uh, one of the reasons I didn't go for an industry or just a research institute job is I love being with the students. I love being with the future every day. So to all the future voices of the field, astronomy, the STEM workforce, I would just say we need you. We need your perspectives. We need to advance from all human ways of knowing we need diversity of not just thought and background, but diversity of approaches to solving the pressing problems our world faces today. When I work with indigenous students who bring their background in, say, aeronautical engineering and uh, their cultural insights, it's so valuable. We all learn and grow as a team. So I would say we need you. I do think this modern world is very stressful. And I would say to everyone, moment to moment, it's important to just pause and breathe. And I think at this juncture in history, I've become very intentional about seeking joy, uh, just just making time for it so that we can go on, you know, coming out of these pandemic years, which were traumatic and exhausting and scary. Um, we can continue to do the work together and to really let our ancient origins inspire us. Just laying out under dark skies reconnects us beyond words. It reconnects us to our ancient and slower selves. Thank you for your encouraging words and putting perspective to, I suppose, everything the collective conscience has gone through. Um, I'm certainly looking forward to reading more of your work and keeping up to date with all of your accomplishments and just takes on life, I suppose. I hope that we see you around and I have the chance to hear from you more. Happy Women's History Month, listeners. And once again, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you both. And thanks to the whole technical team for making this happen as well. 
And I'll just close uh, by wishing everyone a very reflective month in which we are celebrating Ramadan, Ramadan Mubarak. Uh, all good wishes for Passover coming up and also a very happy Easter Sunday coming up in a little over a week.